Welcome everyone to the next in our series of events to mark the fifth anniversary of the referendum back in 2016. To those who are watching yesterday, I can reassure you that while I'm on the same computer that wouldn't charge yesterday and that went flat at the end of the event, it is now charging. So, so far, so good. And we're delighted to have a fantastic panel of uh, Katja Adler, friend and colleague Hussein Kasim, friend and colleague Georgina Wright and Lindsay Appleby here to talk about the future of UK and EU relations. But I figured, I mean, actually, before I go on, let me just flag to you the fact that uh, Hussein is one of the authors of a report we put out today that will be with you in the Slido on the future of UK EU relations, which I recommend to you most strongly. I mean, I would, wouldn't I? But before we start looking at the present and the future, I thought it might be nice to reflect backwards uh, quickly and just just say to the participants what has struck you most about the last five years have they unf unfolded as you might have expected that they would have done five years ago today what has surprised you about the way things have gone in any particular order everyone's looking down uh, so Hussein I'll pick on you yeah, so um, I spent most of my career looking at the, how the UK coordinated its EU policy and um, every, everywhere you go, everybody admired, um, admired, admired the UK for its ability to understand what was happening um, over the other side of the um, channel, but also in the, in the other member states. And I suppose the thing that surprised me most was that the UK didn't really take the unity on the EU side very seriously. And um, I think that's come as a sort of constant surprise. I think that's sort of, you know, that, that, that persisted throughout the five years. And it sort of, in a way, has continued if we, um, you know, if we're to believe what, um, you know, what we, what we, what's been reported over the last couple of weeks. And um, I think that's really, it's a real problem because it really is a threat to, um, to what happens next. Catcher, uh, your reflection yeah. for five years? I would say that as a um, by now veteran EU watcher, um, even though I've sort of forayed elsewhere in the world in between, um, I, I was quite blindsided by the EU unity, I think, during the negotiations. Um, I'm used to seeing a very fractious EU. I mean, don't forget, we've got EU leaders meeting today. Uh, again, they've got a summit and they're going to argue, as they always tend to argue over migration or uh, Eurozone reform. And over those Brexit negotiations, pretty much um, they remained united. Um, often inside the EU, there are these criticisms that big countries, Germany and France, ignore the welfare of the smaller ones. Ireland, though, was front and centre in these negotiations. So I think um, the fact that all the big countries sometimes against their own economic interests um, were willing to stand behind uh, Ireland when it came to negotiations with the United Kingdom. Um, I think that took a lot of people who know the EU very well uh, by surprise. I think also if we go back to the political temperature of 2016 and, and remember, I mean, you know, Brexit, there was Trump, there was all this talk of after Brexit will come Dexit, Italexit, Nexit, Frexit, you know, or so many other countries were going to leave. And actually what we see is there's more EU enthusiasm now uh, amongst the member states than there's been for a long time. I'd argue there's Brussels scepticism, but not that Euro scepticism where countries are really saying, I want to leave too. So I, I, you know, I think that's changed very much. And also what we couldn't have predicted uh, on, you know, the day of the referendum and once the result was known was what kind of Brexit uh, there was going to be. And the reason that the EU couldn't predict it is because quite clearly the United Kingdom didn't know what kind of Brexit it was going to get either. Well, I, for one, miss hearing you most days on the Today programme these days, Katja. Uh, Georgia, let me just say, uh, for those of you who are interested, as you should be in the forthcoming French elections, you should sign up to the Institut Montaigne because their stuff is very, very good. And also, handily enough, tends to be in English as well. Georgie. Thanks. That's a great plug. Um, and it's 
It, to a certain extent, I sort of everything surprised me. Nothing surprised me um, in the sense, um, unlike Katya, I think EU unity um, didn't come as a surprise at all. I almost expected it, and I think that's because um, the shift you know, from being kind of an internal negotiation when you're a big member state, and that's where, you know, it's, it's you do see a lot of division. But the EU is actually quite united when it negotiates with a third country. But that, of course, the UK was in that position where it was still a member state for part of the negotiations, and then it became a third country. Um, and I think that shift of dynamic, um, a lot of people, that I think that definitely took people by surprise. Um, do I, am I surprised about where we are now? Uh, not really. I think there was always going to be a period of mourning before there can be really real constructive thinking about the future. And I'm sure we'll come back to that. Um, but in a sense, it, it's it's kind of now that I'm looking at the EU and I'm seeing everything that's going on there, I sort of look back to these years and think there's so much that happened. And then your helpful graphic of, of and timeline of everything that happened. And I mean, it's just quite remarkable that, that the UK and the EU were able to strike an agreement, particularly given that the EU usually takes between what, a year and a half and seven years to conclude a simple trade agreement and this was much more so surprised but also not really surprised. So I suppose I'd added a rider to that that today might show that when the EU were talking about talking to a third country they might have some pretty big fights as we I think we're going to see today over over Russia but Lindsay. Uh, yes well, well well thanks very much for inviting me on the panel. Uh, I'm in some ways a little a little bit more like Georgina in that I think many things were not really very surprising. The fact that Brexit and a country exiting the EU had never happened before meant that there was a lot of emotion and a lot of politics, which has taken a long time to settle down. There wasn't really a roadmap for doing this. Article, the Article 50 process only gave a certain amount of guidance. What, what I would say I think surprised me a bit was actually how the consensus around doing the right thing about citizens' rights very quickly just became a reality. And I actually think this huge success on citizens' rights across the whole of the EU in general, there are some problems. We're concerned about some of the issues on the EU side and they're concerned about some of the issues on our side. But I think that actually turned out to be quite a straightforward discussion because it was one of those areas where we had the same objectives. Mm. And, and I actually think the debate about money turned out to be more straightforward than people expected as well. I think what has been more surprising probably is how uncomfortable it feels to me the EU still feels about aspects of e EU exit and the UK leaving because we have gone for a fairly a very broad relationship, but one that is quite obviously based in precedent. And I think that it is quite challenging for the EU to really decide what its strategic sense it wants to make out of such a broad-based relationship with a significant neighbour on its on its borders. I think that uh, that's reflected a bit in this this concern that the UK is, is seeking to divide member states. I, I genuinely don't think that's the case. Uh, I agree that uh, in the early stages of the Brexit debate, there was quite a bit of mention of that. But I think that we, we're comfortable and have been comfortable with the EU taking a, a common position together about what's in its interests, where we've set out what we've tried to do is to set out in hopefully quite calm and reasonable terms where we think there is a shared interest in doing something together. 
And in some of those areas, as is well attested, we think we could have gone a bit further um, on services, on an SPS agreement. Those kind of areas, we think we could have achieved a bit more. Thanks. Okay, interesting. Before I come on to the TCA, because I think that's where we should go next, let me just quickly plug our EU Settled Status Report that we will stick in the Slido for you all that goes into... I mean, that actually recognises the fact that the Settled Status Scheme has been an enormous success, whilst pointing out that actually with the scale in terms of numbers that we've seen, even a relatively small-scale failure can involve tens of thousands of people. So we'll stick that in the Slido. But moving on to where we've got to, do we think that the, the, the trade and cooperation agree, agreement provides a, a sort of stable basis for long-term relations between the UK and the EU or not? So I, if I start this time, I think um, potentially, potentially it does, of course, but you need both sides to play ball. Uh, and of course, if you ask the UK or if you ask the EU, each side will say the other one isn't playing ball. For example, you, you have an agreement and not all I's or, you know, are dotted, T's crossed because, it, you know, it, you can have something on paper, but it has to work on the ground. Obviously, the protocol is a, is a really, really big issue here. The idea of having these agreements is that um, you can solve problems together as they arise. And I think both the UK and the EU would say, actually, we're not solving things together at all. When it came to vaccines, the EU acted unilaterally over the, over the protocol. The EU feels that the UK is acting unilaterally repeatedly uh, also over the protocol. Um, I think that uh, privately, both sides would say there's not very much trust kind of in this immediate term. And I would say longer term, the UK and EU would hope uh, that things would settle down. I think, you know, you, you do have to separate, obviously, the protocol and the actual trade agreement. Um, I think whether the protocol itself can survive, I think there's a big question mark over that uh, at, the, at the moment. The trade deal is there. It needs to be worked out and worked on, I think, um, by the two sides. I think at the moment, it's five years since um, the Brexit vote, but it's very early days um, in the trade agreement. And I think it's really difficult to judge it right now. Okay, we'll come back to the protocol. So in a sense, if we can talk about TCA minus protocol, I'm sure we'll get back to more specific things on, on the protocol uh, later on. Georgie. Can I come in? Because um, I think Katia is absolutely right. And I was um, one of the things I was really surprised about is how badly some people on both sides wanted the negotiations to fail throughout the five years. And I feel like there are still some people now who say it's an awful deal, we should get rid of it. But, but mostly I think the consensus has shifted to let's try and make it work. And you sense that in, in EU member states, you're seeing like practical cooperation between customs officials, for example. You're seeing, I mean, obviously, but I'm not a party to the, the discussions in the Joint Committee or the Joint Partnership Council, but presumably they are trying to resolve disputes. They're trying to show ways that they can overcome some obstacles. So in a sense, I think that's, that is a positive step, um, but can it evolve? I mean, we know that sort of it ref the TCA reflects kind of the ambition on both sides, I think. And, and Lindsay's right, there are probably ways that both sides would have liked to have improved it. And the EU have said repeatedly that they quite like the idea of having a structured foreign policy corporation, but that's seemingly not something that the government wants. And so, again, there is an onus on both sides to think about, okay, if we are going to cooperate in areas of mutual interest, how do we do that? given our limits um, on what we're prepared to do in terms of formal cooperation. Either the other two want to come in? I mean, Lindsay, it'd be nice to hear your view on this, I think. 
Yes, I thought I, I thought I would wait for others, having been so involved in negotiating it. Obviously, a bit kind of party pre. The natural pa- sort of para- parental pride. <laughs> yeah, a, a little bit of that. Um, I think that uh, broadly, I think it is a success, uh, and I think that the implementation is actually going quite well. I think that the fact that at the Partnership Council we had sort of four or five issues uh, overall out of, you know, uh, 15 different uh, chapters, uh, and by chapters I mean big chunks of agreements that often would be separate agreements in a different context. Mm. I think that shows that actually most of it is working really well and most of it is providing a stable base. The fact that we're not talking about truck drivers or... Uh, transport systems or electricity in a in a in a dramatic way all of that I think is actually quite a successful unpicking and reforming of what is a complex and multifaceted relationship I think the fact that the JHA provisions are working well uh, on law enforcement that that's actually a huge achievement and there were people for quite a lot of last year who were saying we wouldn't be able to achieve anything on law enforcement. I think Georgina's right though to pick up the areas where the TCA doesn't cover as well. And I would actually say that in some of those areas, I think there's now quite a good track record of success that I think people wouldn't necessarily have predicted at the start of the year. Uh, For example, uh, sanctions announced at the same time on Russia, on China, most recently on Belarus, that for me is an example of a foreign policy relationship that actually sort of reflects shared values. Uh, obviously, the sort of return of more traditional transatlanticism has helped there. There's no doubt that that creates a sort of safer political space for that. But I actually think it shows similarly to the, the very good engagement that we have on climate change and the preparations for, for the Conference of the Parties. It shows there's a lot that's going on outside the treaty that is also really positive. Uh, I absolutely accept, Anand, that we'll, we'll come back to Northern Ireland, but I, I do think Catch is right that actually the big challenges are around the Northern Ireland Protocol. Mm. And the rest of the challenges are the kinds of things you would expect as you move these complex agreements into practice. For example, fisheries agreement hugely complicated agreement one of the things that took us really until the end of the negotiation to find ways forward a, a little bit less finished in that regard possibly than some other areas really to do with the complexity of the issues around fisheries and then fact you need to work those through but here we are we've got an annual fisheries agreement in place we're building the relationships with other partners around uh, the north northeast atlantic and there's actually rather a good story to tell about implementation on fisheries, I think, overall. But but surprise, surprise, uh, some of the some of the changes don't work, don't work in a way that uh, everyone is is happy with. And that's that's because it's a very changed relationship. Thanks. Yeah, can, can I just add, can I just add some something to I, mean, I, I think I think that um, um, I think obviously having the agreement is, is is a real achievement and it's far better than the alternative. I mean, there is a lot of unfinished business though and I'm sort of worried about some of the 
I wouldn't call them loose ends exactly, but they are places where um, the two sides need to, you know, come to some accommodation. They, 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 they are, they are, um, there are deadlines for that to take place, and I'm a bit sort of concerned about that. I also, I also think that the review parts are there are flashpoints there, and I wonder where we'll have got by the time that they, um, that they um, materialise. But I also wonder whether sort of COVID hasn't concealed a lot of the impacts and and, and difficulties and fallout from the from the deal in ways that um, that make it you know, possible um, or easy to, easier to cooperate at the moment. But um, when the sort of the full difficulties are, are sort of revealed, as it were, it might be much more difficult to sort of manage those. And that's where the, I think the truck drivers uh, come on and you know, comes in and where the infrastructure actually, um, the, the infrastructure on the UK side also um, also plays a part. So those would be my concerns. But it is, it is really encouraging about you know, the cooperation beyond the agreement. I think that the foreign policy examples that Lindsay cited are really, really important. Um, if I just, uh, just a quick aside, I think, you know, from talking to um, people in the EU, that's often a kind of a side comment they make. Obviously, they're very focused on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And I know you'll take us there, Anand, but we really have to get there. Um, but what, but their, their comment then is, is um, isn't, it, isn't it ironic um, the, that, you know, they're saying to me that actually we're cooperating best on things that aren't in the agreement, like foreign policy, whereas things that actually are on paper between the two sides are not uh, working so well. And on, um, on on fishing, Lindsay, I think that inside the EU, there's a feeling that some of the traditional UK allies, like Denmark, for example, um, are so fed up of the whole fishing question that actually in internal EU circles, when they're talking about a future relationship with the UK, they really, it's not that they've turned their backs, of course not. The whole of the EU and individual member states know that it's absolutely in their strategic interest to have as close a relationship as possible with the UK. But there's that feeling of fed upness um, and mistrust, which is can't, and it's not even just just about the protocol. It's been the whole of the last of the five years issues for individual countries uh, like fishing that has made the member states quite happy to hand this over to the commission um, rather than getting in, too involved uh, themselves. And also raises questions what, like, um, why isn't the EU thinking more long term about its relationship uh, with the UK? The TCA is, you know, that can't be, that's not going to be the end of it, you know, for years to come. And yet when the EU sits down, it's got a policy paper on Ukraine, it's got a policy paper on countries in, in Africa and not, not one on the UK. And I kind of get the feeling in the EU at the moment, it's just like, you know, it's just, it's just too much fed up, got other things on our plate. And, and perhaps I would say they're not paying the attention that they should uh, on a member state basis, which I, I find quite interesting. I think we'll come back to that as well. Now we're getting an awful lot of questions in, which means two things. Firstly, if you in the audience can vote for the questions you, I mean, you know I'm a bit flaky on this, but if you can vote for the questions you want me to post to the panelists, I will do the, the ones that you, are, you find most popular. And also I think, you don't all, all the panelists don't need to reply to every question so we can keep this moving but i want to come back to you with something specific on this i mean just two two areas maybe where i sort of wonder whether the, the current status quo is sustainable i mean first is it really sustainable that you know musicians accountants academics for heaven's sake might need visas to pop over to the european union to apply their trades and that's something that we're going to have to talk about sooner rather than later and ian bond raises the point about foreign policy i mean he says you know the US now has in place policy dialogues with the EU on China and Russia. At some point, isn't the UK going to have to institutionalise its foreign policy relationship with the EU a little bit to coordinate better? Any, any but preferably not all of you, I think is the <laughs> <point>. <laughs> oh, dear. 
but do feel free just to chime in or just don't answer i suppose well i think there's a bit of that that i'm maybe the most logical person <laughs> to, to kick out kick off on to be honest um on the on the foreign policy relationship i i think I think there's no need to kind of rush. I think that's the point that we were making during the negotiation is I, I think we're, we're, we're not a, opposed to structures and we're not opposed to structured discussions, but, but we never believed that the relationship should be conceived of as a single monolithic treaty-based organisation. We didn't believe that would be the best way to actually get cooperation going. And I'm sure if there came up a, a specific issue arose, as, as it has most notably the last few months on sanctions, but where there was a desire to work together on a stabilisation objective, whether, whether in the neighbourhood or more broadly, I think that we would use those organic relationships we have to build the kind of responses that we need. Um, so I think that's what I would say about the foreign policy piece. On the um, on on touring musicians, um, so I think it's an interesting area where you've got a mixture of member state and EU competence, and there's a lot of there's a lot of member state competence here. Uh, there are lots of different rules which attach themselves to every different area of kind of work in uh, in different member states, and the basic nature of the relationship on migration was sort of defined fairly early on on the two sides whereby the eu would operate in terms of the constraints that its schengen systems put around it and it was clear it wasn't planning to amend the schengen border code in any significant way uh, and that that's reasonable enough and we were clear that we were going to operate a global migration policy i think that does leave space to keep working on areas of common interest. And as you know, the specific example of, uh, of touring musicians, there are 17 member states of the 27 who I think have rules that we would characterize as, as more flexible, 10 who no doubt for, for good reasons of their own have particular rules around work visas, which work in a different way. And we're working with those member states to, to take that forward it wasn't possible to achieve anything on an EU-UK-wide basis during the negotiation. I'm not going to recap the different perspectives on why that was the case, but it wasn't possible to achieve that. But we're confident that as we move forward, we can keep trying to find pragmatic solutions with each of the, the member states involved. And that isn't a, a sort of divide and rule tactic. It's simply a recognition of the areas where member states will be acting and where the EU will be acting. Thank you. I know you don't want us all to speak, but I think this is just quite interesting if we're, if we're throwing forward as well as uh, looking back. And, and I think that, you know, the EU, um, as it was holding these negotiations with the UK, kept holding on to the idea that you know, maybe when the, the heat has gone, you know, has, has started dissipating from these negotiations, maybe the, go the government in the UK will be, unquote, from the EU perspective, more reasonable, uh, more open to things like agreeing something on freedom of movement, or when it comes particularly to Northern Ireland, for example, getting some kind of veterinary agreement that, you know, both sides uh, could sign up to. I think what's changed is that the EU is not kind of 
waiting for anything, but it, it knows that depending in future years, the, the flavor of, of government that you would have in the UK, this is a, a relationship and this is a, a trade deal that is there to be built on or taken away from, you know, it, it's it's not solid forever and for always. Um, and, and I think that when, when we look forward, that, that is something that you can see, you know, we always talked about a narrow agreement um, that, that the Johnson government was looking for, and it's actually been turned out to be more broad based than, than many had thought. In the future, it could become closer, more broad based or become more distant. I mean, all of that, you know, lies in the future and there's is nothing that uh, that we can predict at the moment. But something I've seen is that the EU has stopped sort of waiting, hoping. It's just kind of getting on with it, if you like. I'm going to press on. I mean, we've got a number of questions around a broad theme that I'm going to summarise as to what extent are current UK-EU tensions or the frostiness in relations structural or contingent? So I suppose what that means is structural in the sense that if you leave, it's bound to happen because like it or not, there are people on both sides of the divide who rather hope that the other side fails, uh, you know, because it's good politically at home if the other side can be seen to be doing badly. So that would be the structural argument. Contingency is either because of the way negotiations panned out and the sort of ill feeling and lack of trust that Katya talked about or is it even more contingent than that is it down to personalities you know David Frost is a, apparently a slightly more acerbic character in meetings with the EU than Michael Gove was Boris Johnson is well he's Boris Johnson uh so just sort of trying to sort of step back and analyze why things are as they are where would you sort of look to for, ex for an explanation George you look ready to speak yeah I'll, I'll take this one um or at least in part um so as I said at the beginning, I think there was always going to be a period of mourning, uh, and, and you know because it was a it was a fractious sort of five years, and the negotiations went on until the bitter end, um, and there there was ultimately going to need a period where you just sort of try and implement the deals that are in place, and then you can start thinking about the rest. But I think on the EU's perspective, there is this frustration, and I agree with Katya that, you know, that their patience is, is wearing very thin, and that's sort of in the Commission, in the Parliament, and, and in the Council, because they feel that the UK isn't playing by the rules. So it's the sense that, you know, we negotiate in faith, we sign this, these agreements in faith, and why are they not being fully applied in faith? And actually, there are processes processes in place to kind of raise disagreements and that's why by incidentally you know when the UK government recently uh, requested an extension for the grace periods under the Northern Ireland protocol within the joint committee that went down very well because it was like oh it's in it's not a unilateral decision it is actually using the process in place but I do think personality matters um, and in a sense it's not just how uh, Lord Frost um, gets on with Maris Sefcovic, it's also about his personal relations with um, capitals. And my sense in, in Paris is that a lot of people don't really understand Lord Frost. They don't really know what his sort of, you know, they, they, they think they know his convictions, but there are a lot of other things that are unknown. So I think some sort of personal outreach in, in that respect is important. And I'll just end up by saying, I think a lot of, bi um, a lot of member states would quite like uh, strong bilateral cooperation with the UK on a range of issues, even if it's um, d just dialogue. Um, but some smaller member states feel that they're just not going to get the same attention as the bigger, larger member states. And that's also why they're pushing for, in terms of foreign policy, uh, an EU-wide structure, because they think that that's the easiest way for them to be to be listened to and to have a really kind of um, uh, a regular dialogue with the UK. Thank you. I'm in a state of mourning over the 
the cricket, so I'm not taking any questions from the New Zealand High Commission today, so don't bother <laughs> wasting your time by asking. Hussain? Yeah, I, th I think I think that George is absolutely right about the, the smaller member states. I think that this is this was one of the benefits of the, the sort of Barnier task force model that everybody felt that they could participate. It was all transparent and open, and I think that now, in a way, we're back to the... Um, there, you know, there is a sort of there is a sort of central um, you know, venue for discussion, but there is suspicion that all these discussions are happening on the outside. Outside, and do we know about these? Do we know what's going to happen? I think that's I think that's really important. But I think also the EU doesn't doesn't re doesn't. It's a process based institution. We know this because there are so many member states. And they all have to be um, sort of you know kept on board, and the, they've agreed the rules, and the rules have to be um, sort of pursued. So there's a kind of you know, there's a very strong and heavy process element to that. But I think at the same time there is a there is a um, a sort of difficulty in how to read the UK. Is the UK the, the sort of traditional country they've always known that takes rules seriously, or is it, I'm not going to say a rogue state, but is it one that we can't sort of predict, we can't trust, and what are we going to do about this? It's a big neighbour on our doorstep, you know. Um, it is a, it is a, it is a difficulty. Most of our neighbours, the EU would say, are people that we do business with, we have relationships with. Although I think you know, the Swiss case is a bit of a counterexample to that now. But um, but you know, th th these are states that um, are engaging with us positively, and one day will probably be member states. That's not the case with the with the UK. It's an anomaly. It's difficult to to read and understand. And it's explicitly made it clear that it wants you know sovereignty. It wants to be away from you know, out out of the reaches beyond the gravitational pull of the EU. Gotcha. Um, I think um, sort of on a day-to-day -day level at the moment, still after quite bruising negotiations, there's, a, there's an issue of kind of na 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 at each other. You know, the UK says to the EU, you're ideological, we can't work with you. And then the EU says, no, you're ideological, all this stuff about sovereignty, we can't work with you. You know, there is an element of that which is just built on the fact that the last five years have been extremely tough. But I think that the really bad relations comes down to the, to the Northern Ireland Protocol. And the kind of things that I'm hearing is really strong stuff like, you know, the UK was was the UK, but it's put it as a question, but I know what they think. Um, was the UK disingenuous when it signed the Northern Ireland Protocol? Did they negotiate in bad faith? I.e., is, is it possible that the UK just signed up? Boris Johnson basically signed up to the to the agreement just to get on with it, just to then get a trade agreement, but with no intention of respecting the Northern Ireland Protocol as it exists on paper. Now, this is not at the fringes that I'm hearing it. This is like right at the centre of the EU. It's not in the Commission. It's amongst the member states, including member states who are allies of the UK still really want a close relationship with the UK, but are, are really, it's not just fed up, but I think, the, the, I'd say like the look on their faces anyway is kind of disgust, anger, um, and an insistence still that, you know, Ireland is in the club, and there is no way, whatever happens uh, with the Northern Ireland Protocol, that Northern Ireland will become like a second-class citizen within the single market. So this is still a very live issue, and this brings like some of the rancor of the negotiations. It's still very much in the bellies of the member states when they come to talk about the Northern Ireland protocol it's not just about the single market it's about it's this bad faith question that a lot of member states are really holding on to and in the words of one member of a, of a, of a very key member state uh, not France uh, said slowly but surely because of the protocol we're all becoming more French when it comes to the UK um, that's not in the UK's advantage I, ha I have to say uh, when it looks on sort of building and moving forward in this relationship with the EU Okay, Katya, you win. We're gonna we're gonna turn to the protocol if that's all right, Lindsay. Unless you want to come in on this. Well, I just think it might be. We've heard quite a lot about the frustrations at the EU end, and what I would say is there's quite a lot of frustration at the UK end 
And, and then, I mean, I absolutely agree we should go on to Northern Ireland and I'm not going to come back on those points at this point. But on the structural question, I think that there are many in the EU who still seem to want us to be closer than the relationship that the government has very clearly set out that it wants, which is an FTA-like relationship. People will have different views about that, but it's a very clear and it's a very simple model. Uh, and I think there's quite a bit of frustration on our side that there are these accusations that we're not implementing the TCA. We absolutely take issue with that. Absolutely take issue with it. Um, I, um, um, pardon me, I meant with the Northern Ireland Protocol, sorry, just to just to be very right. clear. I apologise. What, that's what I was specifically um, talking about, Lindsay. So, yeah, no, sorry. But, I mean, just to pick up Georgina's point, actually, because I think she was talking about the TCA, we are implementing the Fisheries Agreement. We're implementing it in full. It's a complex agreement. It was a difficult agreement to reach, but we're absolutely implementing it. We're implementing the really complex JHA agreement. Where we see problems with member states or with the commission, we raise them. We think there are significant problems facing UK nationals stemming from the withdrawal agreement and the way some of that is being implemented. But we raise those issues with the intention that the implementation goes forward. There are problems with extradition, highly sensitive political issue in a range of member states. We are immediate recourse is not to insist that the EU has no intention of implementing the agreement. It's a recognition that some of these issues that take time, but that they will need to be resolved. So I do think it's important to set the record straight because it isn't the case that uh, there is a sort of difference about the way the TCA is being implemented. And some of the frustrations on our side about the quite surprising things, I think, to go back to the structural point, it's quite surprising that, that the EU wants us to be part of a sort of gravitational space when our understanding is there's a clear understanding that, that isn't the kind of relationship that we picked. And I think some of the, some of the personality and the sort of individual-based comments as well I think if you look back at the history of the last five years, some of the things that EU leaders and EU negotiators have said about the UK over that period of five years, understandably, lots of politics and emotion, but are quite extraordinary on their side as well. So I don't, I don't think it's the case that personalities and those sort of contingency issues should be sort of attached in a one-sided way to one side or the other. I think that, incidentally, looking at my camera, I'd just like to make it clear for the record, that's my son's arsenal scarf and it will be removed after this session. Uh, but <laughs> on the protocol itself, I mean, one of the things you hear quite a lot around here, I'm in central London at the moment, is a frustration amongst British officials that uh, you'll hear the European Union being very, in, you know, there's, a, there's an insensitivity to you, legitimate unionist complaints about the protocol and people saying things like you shouldn't give in to the threat of violence if unionists are threatening violence because of the protocol. Whereas during the negotiations itself, when that was the other way around, which is you can't have infrastructure on the island of Ireland because it will get blown up. That seems to be what the conversation happened the other way around. So there is a frustration in this country or amongst in the government, at least, about how the EU views the protocol. But now we get to the question, which is 
can the protocol be made to work? We've had a couple of questions in ask, actually asking if it can be renegotiated, which is an interesting issue. But do we think, panellists, do you, do you think there is a way that the protocol can be made to work given where each side is at the moment? Lindsay, if you want to say yes, if the EU is more flexible to kick us off, that would be fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy to, to kind of set out where we are on the protocol. I mean, from our perspective on the protocol, it's important, I think, to set in context that the protocol was always a means to an end or to various ends. It wasn't an end in itself. And the most important end, from our perspective, was and remains the Belfast Good Friday Agreement and the balance that that represents between the communities. The, the negotiation of the protocol was fraught, I think it's fair to say. I don't think any of the panellists would disagree with me on that. Happened over a series of stages, in our, our case with, with, with two different governments, um, and produced something that I think is objectively was a much less finished piece of treaty than some bits of the TCA. I say that because it was explicit that very significant parts of it would need to be developed through implementation. And I think that is very obvious on the face of the protocol and with the work that was delegated to the Joint Committee for it to do. I think reflecting the complexity of the objectives around the protocol, there are uh, obligations in the protocol that, that point in a variety of directions. There is a clear obligation to ensure that trade east-west uh, remains fluid and that the, the UK customs union is protected. And that is important. And for us, the balance within the agreement and trying to find ways of implementing it, which reflect that balance, has always been critical. I think that it is that process that needs to continue of finding ways of achieving the objectives that we all want, that the, there is political stability in Northern Ireland, that that political stability is reflected in strong, sustainable institutions in Northern Ireland, that it isn't perceived to be the debt to the detriment of one part of the community or another, and that the outcome of it needs to be a prosperous and successful Northern Ireland. And the the, the, the challenges that we are seeking to address in the implementation of the protocol are about issues which arise from their, their, it not being guaranteed that there will be that kind of success on Northern Ireland, whether that is about uh, uh, pets and guide dogs, whether that is about uh, what kind of medicines are, on, uh, are able to be used by the NHS in Northern Ireland, those kind of issues and the fact that it is a special set of processes which was designed to meet a specific circumstance rather than any sort of external border of the EU in a classic way, that's the set of issues that we're trying to address. We want to do that in a way that is consensual. Uh, there were a lot of challenges at the beginning of the year and we took a set of actions which we judged were necessary to get, provide more political space for the discussions on the protocol to continue. Those actions were controversial, but we're confident that we took them 
for reasons which support political stability in Northern Ireland. And that will continue to be the government's absolute priority. Thanks. I'm going to come to Georgie in a sec because she's got a view from a particular and important member state that I'm keen to hear. But Lindsay, just to press you on one thing, would you say it's fair to say that however the EU, however sort of liberally or sort of soft touchedly the EU agrees to implement the protocol, there are still going to be there is still going to be the need for some, however minimal, checks on trade between GB and NI. So it will not, you know, trade between GB and NI will not be like trade used to be between GB and NI, however flexible the EU choose to be. We've always been been clear that there will be. We recognise the benefits of some additional process because we have a shared objective to also ensure that the, the north-south uh, trade is protected and the achievements made in terms of the, uh, the economy across the island of Ireland, those are protected. So we've always absolutely understood that the EU would need reassurance that Northern Ireland did not in fact operate as a backdoor into the single market or undermine human health or the legitimate objectives of the union in any of the areas that are of interest and priority to it. So we absolutely recognize and always have that particular solutions will need to be found. It's obviously the case that there always were processes to treat Ireland as a single epidemiological unit, for example. And I think the analogy is processes like that processes that don't create an identity challenge and don't create a sort of profound sense of disequilibrium in Northern Ireland. No process of change, I think, was going to be go going to be straightforward. But what we want to do is work to see if there are ways of ensuring that those changes are not destabilizing in Northern Ireland. And that does mean, from our perspective, that the very real problems that have emerged with the way the protocol is operating really need to be addressed. And I would say, because I think it's sometimes something that people don't focus on, that there is a lot of, uh, there is a lot of uh, professional work going on in the commission on a whole range of these issues. There are a lot of highly talented officials on the commission side working on these issues, people working in good faith. We, we feel that they need to be given and to be encouraged to explore uh, creative solutions and solutions which really address the broad range of problems that exist. Thanks very much. Thank you. Georgia, you're now based in France having to deal with all that substandard food, but I mean, what, what, do, the, what do the French think about the protocol? What's the attitude of the French government towards this debate? So, um, it's really interesting because it's kind of a, the French perspective is it kind of depends slightly who you talk to. I mean, it, if we think that France was pretty hard line from what we hear during the negotiations, Macron actually very early on in, in, in Brexit negotiations made one point in passing. I think it was outside the European Council. And he said, you know, a lot of people in the UK voted to leave and we need to be listening to you know, we, we need to honour that decision and we need to be mindful of what they want. So there was, he he was very much, you know, we have to protect the EU's interest, but we also need to be mindful that not everyone in the UK might want the same type of relationship that we do. Not everyone in the UK regrets the re relationship. So coming back sort of to the Northern Ireland Protocol, I think 
France's view is that it wants to make it work first and foremost. Um, and of course, it, it that requires both sides to be pragmatic. Um, and but you know when when the TCA was when the, the text was published, the government line was caution, caution, caution. And to come back to you, Lindsay, I don't think it's the I think the French government know the difference between sort of the application, the you know la mise en œuvre of the withdrawal agreement and the TCA. But the broader policy world in, in Paris kind of confuses both, and that's because they're not always on top of every twist and turn of the Brexit negotiations, and also because many of them just simply switched off, and because they focused on sort of everything else that was going on in the EU, France's position and everything else. Um, I think the, as you say, controversial uh, announcements, uh, you know, decision to unilaterally extend, that kind of damaged trust, but it made it much harder for the Commission to then try and, and, and find ways to be more flexible, simplify perhaps some of the detail of the Northern Iron Protocol, because EU capitals who don't always follow this day to day sort of turned around and said, well, why are they doing this? And we have to be we have to be tough. So, again, I think process matters, trust matters. But ultimately, at the G7, I think the message that came out of uh, the French government, but also the other EU governments present was we need to make this work. And also we need to at some point move beyond Brexit and think about our broader relationship. But I think there is a recognition in Paris that they need to make it work. The problem is, is you know, can we see some detail? And actually in terms of like, you know, some of the proposals that have been put forward by the UK, there is a sense of, can we have more data? Can we see how it would work? And I think that might do, again, wonders to kind of try and find ways to perhaps make it work within the confines of what's already on the table. Katya. I think I'm um, adding to what Georgina said, you know, Macron said recently, you know, the UK signed up to the protocol. It knew perfectly well what it was signing because, you know, we've had various voices saying you know, it wasn't clear how it worked um, and it's impossible to go back on it now. I think there's frustration also in the commission, Shevkovich, when uh, there was uh, just working out these grace periods back in November, December, uh, he says, he said to the UK, are you sure these grace periods are long enough? And the UK said, yes, absolutely. Um, so there was frustration then at unilateral moves uh, earlier in the year, as we've heard relief at the request uh, for, the, for the chilled meats and the fact that there's now going to be an agreement and a further extension. I just have to share with you the German word for this, which is Wurstelstillstand, uh, which, um, you know, in German, a ceasefire is Waffenstillstand for your, uh, you know, where you put down your weapons. This is putting down your sausages. Um, and, and actually, there's relief in EU circles that this could be done in an amicable way and a desire that, that this would be the way forward. I think it goes down to this fundamental mistrust now as to whether the government ever intended to honour the protocol as it is. And if it wasn't, if it never intended it, whether you know, when Boris Johnson said all those months ago, privately, that we've all seen the video, you know, oh, there will be no checks. Was it just a slip of the tongue and, and, and a lack of knowledge? Or was it actually intentional on what he intended the government to do? And I think that mistrust goes right through the commission, has bled into the capitals. And as Georgina says, you know, there's now amongst the member states like, well, yes, we could be more flexible, but we don't feel like being more flexible. And when I said earlier, this is not good for the UK, what I mean is the knock-on effect. It means that the, that the EU is sitting on an agreement on financial services. It means that the EU is sitting on an agreement about data sharing, which is very much uh, in, the, in the UK's interest. And I think also, and obviously the EU has to move on from this. They do, because this is just reality. But again and again, you hear this argument that the fact that 
the way that the protocol is working in Northern Ireland is politically destabilizing. You know, the EU view is the UK should have known that, that Brexit would be destabilizing in Northern Ireland, that you could see that right from the beginning with the vote, that pulling away from the EU and especially a hard Brexit and then signing an agreement that keeps Northern Ireland, let's not forget, in the single market uh, for goods uh, and in the customs union, even though legally, of course, it remains part of the United Kingdom, was going to be difficult and was going to cause political difficulties. So there remains that it goes right back five years where the EU says, like, you voted for this you made the choice of what brexit you want you had to know that this itself was going to have a destabilizing effect and why should our single market and member states ireland suffer as a result so that that's still what you hear in passionate terms saying do you want to come in on this at all yeah and it's not it's, and it's not it it, it it i mean it starts from the member states i i, I mean in, in my view also i mean the commission certainly feels this but it's also uh, I mean, if, you know the, the response of particularly smaller member states denmark is, is 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 one in point you know that um you know the uk is an ally but look at the way it's behaving on this i mean the trust is is lost and so so that um that leads to a much a tougher line on um a tough line on enforcement but i'm also sort of struck by a, a sort of fundamental paradox really that um that um, you know that Lindsay was talking about an FTA relationship, but an FTA relationship is fine if you're the other side of the world and you don't actually have a border and, and these aren't your neighbours uh, and your most important trading partner. And so, you know, a very specific concern needs to be taken into account of of that local um, um, you know problem and and sort of you know, continual relationship. Um, um, Anna, I will shut up now, but I have a tiny, tiny point to make, which I'd forgotten, right which, is, which, is, which is, again, um, what, what you hear in EU circles is that they know they need to be more flexible on Northern Ireland and they know they don't want the people of Northern Ireland to suffer. They want, you know, guide dogs, medicines, parcels, and definitely, you know, now ahead of the marching season, something had to be done about, you know, the sausage wars and, and so on. That was, that was very clear in Brussels um, and in capitals as well. Something that the EU does worry about the protocol and whether it can survive or what kind of agreement and compromises can be made with the UK is that they worry again about the international reputation idea, you know, going beyond Brexit. And sometimes when we talk EU, UK, we, we do forget this, but the commission who makes all the trade deals with other countries is saying, we don't want to be seen as this entity that when the going gets tough, has signed an agreement and will then allow it to drop. Um, and and, and that, that is something that, you know, right or wrong, um, even though Northern Ireland is an exception and everyone realises that, that is something that it, that is playing on, on EU minds. It's quite a good segue to John. Actually, before I go any further, on behalf of all my very middle class Northern Ireland friends, I should add seeds. The thing that annoys them most is the fact that Gardener's World will not send the seeds that come free with every issue to Northern Ireland anymore. And you would not believe the irritation that that seems to be causing among some people. But so, John Pete, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question, I think. And it's, it's, it's about whether or not is the EU just rubbish at dealing with neighbours that don't aspire to join? And does it need to think this through a little bit more? So, or that do aspire to join, but don't really think they will. So whether it's Turkey, whether it's Switzerland, or whether it's the United Kingdom, does the, does, does the EU need to start thinking in terms of a category type that isn't people who are so desperate to join, they'll swallow whatever we throw at them. But actually there are a ring of states around us who are different. And we perhaps need to start thinking about a model of engagement that is outside of the sort of templates that we've normally used. Would that be fair? you think? Sorry, John, if I fundamentally sort of uh, misrepresented your question. But. Can I very quickly answer this, Anna? Because I think in 2016, there was genuine thinking in Brussels and EU capitals about how they could make 
sort of Brexit or the UK-EU future relationship a model for the way that the EU relates to its neighbours. But given the way that the negotiations unfolded and the lack of trust and, and given actually the government's kind of vision for the future relationship, that that and that didn't really go perhaps in the way that the EU hoped. But it takes two, doesn't it, to, to tango and it takes two to, to make that relationship work. And I think there is um, some thinking going on in the EU about, you know, because they are thinking a little bit about how they can relate with the UK, given what the government set out in its own ambitions. Um, but there is a fundamental principle, and, and Katia just said it, which is the EU is, is very firm on this. It's If you've negotiated something in faith and you've signed it in faith, then it needs to be respected in faith and it needs to be applied in faith. And I think until we've kind of moved on from that, until EU capitals and commission feel that 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 has been met, that the Northern Ireland Protocol, that, that that the UK has gone to great, great lengths to apply it, that's only when you can start perhaps trying to see if there's any flexibility within the text. But there is this sense sometimes that the Northern Ireland Protocol wasn't imposed by the EU, it was negotiated with both of them. So if you're going to think about a new model, then that needs to come through negotiation and both sides need to want a different form of partnership and perhaps you need a better relationship all around. Interesting, thank you. Katja? Um, I think that um, Macron is very interesting on this, um, Georgina, actually, because, you know, he yeah, he came in like he's facing presidential elections. Right. When he came in as president, he was um, he was going to reform uh, France. He was going to reform the EU. Now, he hasn't managed to reform the EU. Um, you could argue, argue what Merkel's role in this or all the other things that have happened that, that have that have stopped him doing it. But I, but I think that something that he's always been aware of is Europe has got to go forward, however it does. And that means that maybe you need to go back to this old idea that's been knocking around Brussels on and off over the years, which is kind of a two-speed Europe or even a three-speed Europe or four-speed Europe, where you have an inner circle and even amongst the member states, those who are more willing to take part in certain projects. But then, you know, going further out, you would have countries like the UK or Turkey or Ukraine or, or others that will dip into EU business on some things and dip out. Out, uh, on other things. I think, you know, as, as I said at the moment, the, the EU doesn't have this policy paper on the UK. It does need to think about it. And the Macron idea, maybe in the future, I mean, if he survives the elections, um, is, is, you know, will be something that will be picked up on. Of course, bilaterally, you know, when we had papers in the UK, you know, always fearing when we were a member state about an EU army, there is this very close cooperation militarily and on security matters bilaterally uh, uh, between um, between France uh, and and the UK already. That is something that Macron would like to to build on in the future. So I think, you know, this is an area that the EU needs to think about, has to get better at because it has to look at its own chicken coop inside Hungary, Poland, these issues for the EU are definitely not going away. It's going to be erupting and argue, being argued about right now uh, between uh, the, the the leaders of the member states um, as they as they hold their summit. So yes, I do think the EU does need to get better on these kind of issues. Lindsay, thanks. Just just a couple of quick points on the FTA point. I mean, there are lots of parts of the world where FTAs work quite well across long and complex borders, and you know the Canada. US one is an example of that. Uh, and that's not to say it's an exact parallel or anything like that. But, but you can make FTA style relationships work while allowing regulatory autonomy. And, and I think that's, that is important. Having said that, I, I think we do absolutely accept and always have 
that the situation in Northern Ireland is distinct and unique. And that, you know, that's what the protocol says. And the protocol is a, is a reaction to a specific situation. It's not, it shouldn't be part of a sort of wider model. It should be bespoke to that. To that. And the challenge we have in Northern Ireland, uh, as reflected by unionist leaders, is that unionists have fundamental problems with the way the protocol is working. And the challenge in Northern Ireland is that the Belfast Good Friday Agreement was obviously based on communities working together and finding ways forward that reflected something that they felt to be a, a good balance. That's why the power sharing institutions are set up the way they are. So we need to find a way forward on Northern Ireland that reflects the, the sort of ongoing dynamics in Northern Ireland. It isn't just a snapshot of a, a particular period. It needs to absolutely be sufficiently dynamic that it can create cohesion between the communities rather than differences between them. And I would say that I think the UK government actually did many things in support of that. And our record in the context of the negotiations over the past, past five years is pretty strong. You know, the preservation of the common travel area, that, you know, that involves choices at the UK end as well. The uh, decision, notwithstanding the fact that there aren't north-south processes of any kind, to be clear that there should be unfettered access for goods into the UK, all of that represents a pretty significant commitment by the UK to do things that are unusual in the Northern Ireland context, creates complexities for us in the, the trade relationships with the rest of the world. So it, it's that kind of um, appropriate responses to the, the very particular situation in Northern Ireland, which is what's at the core of our policy. Thanks. Hussain, do you want to come in on neighbourhood and then I'll come to you, Katja? Yeah, so, so, so maybe it is the case that the EU needs to think about, uh, about, um, about the neighbourhood and, and, and treating mem um, countries that don't want to be member states uh, um, in, a, in a sort of slightly different way. Maybe it needs, does need to think about, uh, what's the jargon phrase, differentiated integration, you know, to deal with sort of Poland and, and Hungary. But I wonder if, even if it had done those, whether that would have been sufficient to have... Um, you know, kept the UK in in the EU um, because um, I mean the UK had a pretty pretty good deal. It was opted opted out of many many things, and so I wondered how differentiated the EU would have to be, would have had to have been for for the UK not to have wanted to leave. And I wonder whether there's any sort of form of relationship sort of short of an FTA that that Lindsay's described that the UK that would be acceptable to the UK. Now I, I don't know how um, on the on the EU side. Um, there could be any sort of better offer, any more imaginative offer that would be appealing to the to the um, to the UK. Mm. I mean, the one thing I would say is just from the report that we put out today, what is what, what's one of the many things that struck me about it was how little systematic thought had gone into the medium or long term future. Uh, that is to say, you know, we are where we are for a variety of reasons, whether contingent or not. But looking forward, or is there a way that we could do things better or sort of ensure that we can work together more effectively in the areas we need to collaborate on? I don't know. But Katya, you wanted to come in. I just wanted to be positive. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, I did, because I, I wanted to say that, you know, we you know, right, rightfully so we've looked we've looked at problematic relationships and, you know, problems you know, that we can see going forward and, and so on. But again, when you talk to member states, they will also bring up things like very good cooperation in NATO, uh, a feeling that with the UK you can cooperate very well on on the green agenda, um, and that you know that there that there are issues aside from foreign policy where 
you know, the EU can see that it will be able to work um, very well with the United Kingdom. And I just, I think that, again, this is this feeling of we're very up close to everything right now. And it's just also that ability to take a step back and realize that, you know, we can't leave the map that we're on. And there is a realization, I think, you know, on, on both sides, we are neighbors, you need each other. And, you know, so yes, it's problematic going forward. It's, it's far from easy. And there are a lot of bad tempers and all sorts of things. But, you know, even out of this immediate EU-UK realm, as I say, with NATO and sort of the wider environmental pursuit um, and relations now with, with Joe Biden, making all of that just a lot easier, uh, perhaps everybody clubbing together on an attitude towards China, you know, things like that. And again, I think we should look to uh, the elections coming up now in Germany and France, because they will also influence, I think, very much uh, relations uh, with the UK. And I think it'll be interesting if the Greens do very well uh, in Germany. Um, I think that will lead to good relations uh, with, with the United Kingdom, because they are actually closer to the UK, for example, on, on Russia, uh, on China, as, as well as the Green agenda. So, you know, I, I think that sometimes we forget domestic policy in the EU uh, EU countries and how that can affect the relationship. And we do have those big elections coming up. Is it is it the expectation amongst member states that we plan to diverge radically when it comes to domestic re regulation? Is that where they are now looking at us or do they think that that won't happen? Or does anyone have a sense of what their expectations are? It's the fear. It's the That is the fear. It's the real fear that remains. I mean, you know, that the kind of, you know, the early on in negotiations was referred to as kind of Singapore on Thames. Um, mm. I think that when you poke at, at member states, they they kind of realise that's unlikely, um, that it's going to be that extreme. But they, they do see that the UK keeps talking about diversion um, and uh, and and changing regulation and and that does make uh, the EU nervous and I think it's not just political it's not just about that the EU can't accept um, that there is this big entity the UK that wants to pull away from its orbit that is I mean that is there um, but there is also just this you know this is these are our, this is our regulatory framework we don't want chlorinated chicken we don't want this we don't want that even if that doesn't come into an eventual trade agreement with the United States it remains a fear and it is it is a conviction amongst member states that that on you know, when it comes to regulation that the UK, however close still right now, of course, you know, so close after after uh, actual Brexit, really, you know, will be wanting to pull away in the future, also to its own advantage in certain areas, of course. Maybe partly on this, Georgie, but if I can add another question for you as well, which is you quite often hear that President Macron would like Brexit to fail. What does that mean? So yeah, quickly picking up on on what Katya was saying, um, I. You know, I think often the EU's fear also stems from the fact that it hasn't, it doesn't have confidence in its own position. So there's a lot of stuff that's going on and they haven't really got a clear idea of where they're going. You know, you hear about strategic autonomy all the time. Well, apparently during President Biden's visit, you know, his officials were saying, well, what do you mean by strategic autonomy? What's what's the US's role in that? And, you know, there's a lot of disagreement, um, which Katya raised early on in the discussion within the EU about how you move forward. And so France. Uh, proposal is let's have flexible formats if we can't move together then let's have groups of member states but I think that's partly also driving the fear because you're kind of keeping an eye out on what the UK is doing but you also don't know really not you don't really know what you're doing um, on the President Macron wanting Brexit to fail I mean I my view is is that yes France have been hardline but but they it's not that they want it to fail it's it they're they're their two preconditions was one, we have to make sure that the UK obviously doesn't get 
better access to the single market without any of the obligations than it would had it been a, a member state. And that was, you know, 100% uh, making sure that basically member states have a better, better deal. And the second was, you know, making sure that whatever the UK does doesn't undermine the, the EU or, or weaken its, its willingness to continue and its ambition and all the rest of it. But I don't really buy the fact that President Macron wants it to fail. And actually, I think you, you see if you follow all his speeches, uh, when he publishes his letter to EU citizens, he published one in The Guardian. And actually, you know, in... in in the circles in Paris, you, you, people are thinking about strategically about how they can work with the UK on a bilateral basis. Obviously, they they already have a strong relationship, but also from the EU UK perspective. So I think for him, it's he needs to show that the EU is working because that was central to his uh, you know pledge when he was a presidential campaign. He's going to become a presidential campaign again. He wants to show that the EU works and that it and that it benefits. French citizens and that it would benefit, you know, they're better in than they are out. But does that, does he want bad relations and Brexit to fail altogether? I don't think so. Okay, thank you. We've got a really interesting question here from Jan Blomar, who's saying, one of, I mean, one of the arguments that Brexit has quite often made was that outside of the European Union, uh, British politicians won't be able to blame the European Union for everything that goes wrong. And actually, one of the fundamental benefits of Brexit is politicians here will have to take responsibility for decisions and their outcomes. Does does the state of UK-EU relations rather imply that we're going to be blaming the EU for a rather long time to come in terms of outcomes and that, that that's not going to materialise in the foreseeable future? And it's a bit of a left-field question. I think it's quite an interesting one. I mean, it, it does seem to me that we're locked into a situation where British politicians can point to the EU and say, well, it's them being unreasonable. That's the reason for A, B or C. Or do we think that's going to change? I mean, I think I'm um, just, you know, one of my um, recent conversations with a, with a smaller member state who mourns and mourns the loss of, of the UK, still hasn't got over the emotional side of it, I think, um, is that, um, you know, this, this person said to me, I, I completely see why if you were uh, the UK government, why wouldn't you use anything to your political advantage? So if there is fallout over Northern Ireland or if there is a sausage war and it makes good headlines for you, why wouldn't you use it and why is the wider eu remotely surprised um if the government were to use it or certain papers in the uk were to use it so i think if we go back right at the beginning to that question of what has surprised us over the last um five years the fact that whether politicians or or, or, or certain newspapers might sort of still like to to blame the eu I don't is is that surprising and you know doesn't the eu blame the uk government for having certain ideas when things are going wrong with the, i mean is that surprising and i don't know georgie i don't Very, think it's surprising no i just think the UK also that it's it's quite easy to forget when we're in the uk that if you look at sort of european media and stuff they don't talk about the uk every single day in fact in terms of even when conversations that i have with other experts from different member states, when we talk about EU issues, EU relations with third countries, the UK often comes third or fourth. It's not always front and centre mm -hmm. of the EU thinking, and particularly not of kind of, if you're looking at France right now, that's gearing up to an election. It's just had regional elections. It has a second round. I mean, these are the sorts of issues that are, that are really, when they're talking about the EU, about what the EU is going to do on vaccines in the future, what you know the EU is going to do to support industry. It's not really the EU's relationship with, with the UK. 
Anyone else want to come in on this? No need to if you don't want to. Well, just just to say, just that I mean, the UK is is really uh, you know, obsessed by the uh, by the EU, and uh, you see that sort of everywhere. And it's, if it's not obsessed by the EU, it's obsessed by by Europe. And um, but 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 actually, um, there's there's also from a sort of practical point of view, there's so much work to be done. I mean, for, you, know, all, you know, working through retained law, working through this relationship. I mean, it's 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 something that's going to preoccupy. Um, British politicians and and the media for for years, um, so it's it's unsurprising in a way. And can I say that um, EU countries themselves, and they discuss this too, um, governments inside the EU do a lot of their own EU bashing um, and have traditionally done so. And I think when the EU is soul searching about where it goes and having a more positive image for the EU, which again is something that you know Macron has has tried to to push this idea of bringing the EU closer to the people of the European Union rather than the Commission. Um, this is something that, that, that governments struggle with, is that when the EU does something positive for them, um, for their countries, they'll claim it as their victory, whereas when it's something that it'd be a harder sell at home, they'll say, oh, it's Brussels. So I think, you know, the UK did this in a particular way, perhaps, but to a certain extent, you will see this mirrored in many definitely the majority of, of EU member states. Yeah, it's fair to say that, that whilst Brexit seems to have strengthened support for membership across the 27, it hasn't necessarily increased fondness for the EU itself. That's to say, the populations are aware of the dangers of leaving now, having watched Brexit, and that it could be quite messy and complicated and time-consuming. But actually, that doesn't mean that they they think that the EU is more effective than it was before. They just sort of think that we're stuck with it. Is that is that a fair character? George, you're, you're nodding, which I like. No, it's 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 quite interesting to see uh, Michel Barnier and how he's um, perceived in France. And actually, the fact that he led right, he had a very successful negotiation has zero impact on whether French uh, citizens like him more or, or less than before. In fact, when you look at Le Figaro, which is the centre-right newspaper, and you look at comments under interviews that he's had, they're like, well, you know, what's the EU got to do with us? And what about our own domestic issues? I mean, it's just really not a determining factor about whether you're popular or not. So, um, I, yeah, I'm not sure, really. Gotcha. Yeah, sorry, motor mouth again. Um, it, I think it's very much like I said right at the beginning, um, Euroscepticism has dissipated um, across the EU in the way that we understand it in the UK, as in a desire to leave the EU. But the true sense of Euroscepticism, and so I call it Brussels scepticism, as I said at the beginning, is alive and kicking across the across the eu um and it, it is very much it's not so much we're stuck together and it's not just about brexit again sorry yeah. it's not just about us um it's this awareness amongst the member states china russia when trump was in the white house and all of a sudden didn't have you know europe's back automatically on security matters that made eu member states particularly the smaller ones like oh my you know denmark which had flirted with the idea of leaving if we were on our own in this world how would we survive and you know that has helped push these countries much more back into the eu fold and again i go back to and john junior said you, you weren't surprised about the unity but the bickering and squabbling that well, that goes on inside the EU, it, you know this is a squabbling family um but it but they, they're happier squabbling together than being sort of stuck on their own and that's why you've seen you know le pen or the freedom party in austria 
Austria, um, you know, having to turn away from this sort of outspoken demand to leave the EU or even leave the euro because there just wasn't enough uh, sort of support for that idea in the population, not because they're in love with Brussels, quite the opposite, but because they don't want to be on their own and they feel like they're stronger together, I think. Lindsay, I'm aware that you've been you've been quiet for a while and I haven't wanted to push you, but we're coming very near to the end of our time. So I thought, I don't know if you have, you don't need to, but uh, if you have any sort of closing reflections that you want to share with us, that would be nice, but don't worry if not. Well, I mean, I suppose it's a tribute to UK journalism, how much UK newspapers are read across um, the continent in many ways. And I do think that sometimes creates a kind of, particular perception of, of EU exit issues, um, and particularly given the different perspectives that there are in UK media about it. Mm. I, I mean, I suppose my, my broad perspective would be that there is more that is positive than meets the eye uh, when you dig down into it. And, you know, sitting at the middle of the problem is, is finding a sustainable solution for Northern Ireland. And, and a politically sustainable solution in Northern Ireland. Um, but, uh, but as always, the sort of variety of views that exist across the EU is, um, you know, it's very, very enriching to be here and very enriching to hear this debate. I suppose that would be my reflection, Anna. Well, that's an excellent note on which to end. Uh, so let me thank you all, Katja, Hussein, Georgie, and Lindsay for taking the time to do this. It's been really, really interesting. I apologize as ever to the people who've asked questions that we haven't got round to, but maybe we'll do this again in a year's time or something and try and come back to some of those questions. For those of you who are real suckers for punishment, we've got another event later today, which I think is at six o'clock, which is an in conversation with Lord Frost, which should be very, very interesting indeed. So do tune into that. But for the moment, thank you very much indeed to the four of you. Enjoy the rest of your day and thank you to all of you for watching and see you soon. Thank you. Bye bye.